Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a Big Cryptic Podcast, where we're inspiring all of you to learn about transformational technologies and how they're changing the way we do business, how we communicate with each other, and possibly the core foundations for how we organize our economy. I'm Dung, host of today's episode. Today's special guest is Paul Brassel, who is the VP of Technology Solutions at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. The Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is one of the 12 regional banks of the Federal Reserve System. Together with the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C., it makes up the U.S. Central Bank. Previously, we've interviewed other U.S. Central Bankers giving their perspectives on emerging technologies, including Paul's own colleague at the Boston Fed, Jim Cunha, who's very active in policy circles and um, media tech forums to share his learnings from the Boston Fed's efforts uh, to build blockchain technology. So you can go back and check out that interview. It's quite informative. Paul is an industry veteran who uh, switched to a career with the Federal Reserve System and having been involved with blockchain projects uh, at the Boston Fed since early days, he's uh, very familiar uh, with the ins and outs of uh, those experimentations. And so uh, he's going to share with us some of that journey and the learnings there. Um, He also contributes to the bank's effort with automation, uh, artificial intelligence, and other emerging technologies. With that, Paul, welcome to our program. Thank you, Dong. It's terrific to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Now, what were you doing in the industry prior to your current career at the Fed? I mean, and and why the the switch to public service? Excellent question. Uh, So I've been in technology uh, almost 25 years now, and it certainly has been my passion, my curiosity, and watching, you know, the impact of, of disruption and innovation on various companies. Um, prior to the Fed, I was with EMC, companies like Siemens and others, where I drove large IT and large technology uh, projects. And, and having that background and that skill set really came into play as I, as I joined the Fed. Um, I think what excited me about the Fed and, and coming from that high-tech environment to a, a public or quasi-public um, organization was the ability to help drive innovation and um, and vision for technology. You know, we always like to talk about things like um, companies uh, being Ubered or being disrupted. And as we think about the future of payments, as we think of the future of, um, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and and, um, regulation, uh, we need to be a technology company. Uh, We have to be. Um, And so my bringing that background has really inspired me to help uh, drive what this vision of technology is in the Fed. You see uh, traditional institutions um, that have been around for decades, like uh, NASDAQ or uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, institutions that you know we're very familiar with now, considering themselves more or less a technology company. Absolutely, you know we see it again and again, and we hear them referring to themselves as technology companies. But I think there's a paradigm shift, and, and that's why I was like, um, you know, the, the case study of Uber, 
where Uber was not a transportation company that disrupted the taxi industry. It was a software company mm. and that their model was not about owning, you know, vehicles, but it was about managing logistics. So I think we have to learn from that lesson. It's not just a matter of taking our legacy business models and trying to digitize it. Um, Jim Cooney actually has a great saying is the goal is not to um, pave the cow paths. And so I think as we look at the future with these technologies, we can't just digitize the past, but actually we have to, you know, look at it differently. We have to redesign it for these emerging technologies. Well, what does a VP of technology solutions at the Fed do? I mean, you're not the kind of central banker who does macroeconomics research, uh, nor are you running math models. You're more on the project management side, right? Executing uh, innovation strategies. So uh, what does your role entail? Yeah, so uh, so my role here would be essentially the the uh, the division CIO for um, all the local IT operations in the bank. So the Boston Fed is roughly an 1,100-person company with 25 departments. And so my team does everything from the desktop support of the bank to our um, project management of IT projects to application development. So whether it's our website or our BI tools or uh, any new technology like that, my team develops it. But what we've been uniquely able to do that I love is to be a thought leader on emerging tech. So we, we carve out a certain amount of our capacity to be um, evaluating technologies like blockchain, like AI, like RPA, uh, and really try to, to uh, inculcate those ideas into the greater, the greater bank. Now, you all recently released a, a white paper um, that encapsulates uh, the journey uh, the long journey, multi-year process in experimenting uh, blockchain technologies. Now, I, I'll get to that in, in a minute, but I, I do want to, you know, for uh, our broader audience, they, they may not have a good understanding of what the Fed does, let alone, you know, some emerging technologies and, you know, why would they be valuable? Can you explain why the Fed cares about blockchain technology? A absolutely. Um, it's interesting for myself and many who have come into the Fed, we, we were faced with what you just described is, is what is the Federal Reserve? You know, what is its mission? Why does it exist? And for many of us, um, our perspective of the Fed really comes from um, you know, media like the Wall Street Journal. The, this week, the Fed um, cut interest rates by 25 basis points. And so from the outside, you might think that's what the Fed does. But in fact, the Fed has a, a rich portfolio of services that we provide to, to the region, the district, um, in some cases globally. Um, so to give you an example of, of some of these um, services that we provide that are not um, the FOMC and the interest rates that you read about in the journal, is uh, we have a very large cash operations group here at the bank where we hold 6% of the reserves for many of the depository institutes in the uh, New England area as the lender of last resort is a good way to describe it. Um, we have our, our army of bank examiners who are out ensuring that the, uh, the financial institutions are safe and healthy and, um, and sound. Um, we have a large research organization that's looking at you know, the impact of ma many economic factors on things like tuition rates and mortgage rates and, and things like that. And one uh, function that we have in the bank that, that I'm very proud of, it's called Regional and Community Outreach. And it's, it's a group of thought leaders who are out working in the community to bring ideas, economic ideas to help low and moderate income communities think differently about savings and, and investment. 
So the reason I lay out all of those functions is, is now to think about those through the lens of, of DLT technology. You know, in the future, as our physical cap cash operations evolve, how might distributed ledger technology uh, alter or change those operations? As we look at bank examiners, uh, in the future, if depository institutes are running on blockchain technology, what do our examiners need to understand? Do they need to understand you know, smart contracts? Do they understand consensus models? So we need to train them and arm them with the knowledge they need to be ready. You think about our research organization in the future, what will distributed technology um, services and companies mean to the economy? And they, they need to start thinking about it. And finally, the example of our regional community outreach um, the whole idea of, of blockchain for social good, if there are now new services that help the unbanked and underbanked, um, they need to understand the impact of that and how they can bring that into the community. So that's just a couple of examples why the Fed would care about this technology. So the innovation curve has been already happening there in the industry and they're uh, innovating and they're experimenting. So, uh, and, the, and the Fed cares about it because you know, for one, they want to get ahead. Well, that's it. And, and you could argue that there's really two dimensions of it is, is one, as part of our public service, we need to uh, closely watch the impact of blockchain in financial services for many of those reasons. But two, um, within our own back office operations, how we might adopt blockchain technology in the future. Um, you know, for instance, as we look at the way payments work around the country and globally, uh, they're very legacy systems, and, and in the future, might a blockchain stack act as a directory service for, you know, um, real-time payment platforms, or um, would blockchain facilitate um, settlement of activity between banks that the, the Fed may run in the future? And it's just, that's more uh, hypothetical examples, but I think the more we're educated, the better prepared we are for how those technologies might influence our operations. Right, and you were mentioning one of the core functions of, of the Fed is serving as a, a supervisor or a regulator um, in the financial system. I think that's that's a good way to tee up the uh, results from your white paper, which details you know the highlights uh, of uh, what you learn experimenting with uh, this technology. So, can you uh, help kind of? Break down, you know, what, what are some of the headlines from that white paper? Absolutely. So to, to quickly uh, touch upon the journey itself, um, it goes back to 2015, 2016, where uh, as, as a body, as an organization, we were keeping a close eye on, you know, this emerging area, you know, as Bitcoin started to become in the, in the public realm, you know, people within the Fed said, okay, we need to understand what this technology is, even if we're still very embryonic. So, um, so roughly in that 2015-2016 mandate, you know, we really felt that there were legs there and, and we needed to, to learn more. Across the Federal Reserve, many banks were, were evaluating it, but I, I would argue, you know, from more from an academic point of view, you know, what does it mean from, from the economy? What does it mean from uh, policy? Well, we tried to do differently here at the Boston Fed is we said we need to get our hands dirty with this technology. We need to kick the tires. We need to understand what's hype and, and reality. And so that led to really assembling a team of, uh, of specialists here at the bank to, to construct a blockchain environment. And, and when we started, um, we said, OK, what's a use case that would really prove the value or the learnings of this? 
And coincidentally, here at the Boston Fed, one of our responsibilities for the Federal Reserve is, is running the general ledger for the entire system. So the general ledger manages uh, all the settlements, the reserves, the movement of money, um, and payments that the Fed facilitates. And at the end of the day, all of that activity, true ups, it settles within a general ledger. Let's construct sort of a mini version of that where we'd have accounts, we would simulate the movement of money between those accounts, uh, understand how we would construct a, a, a smart contract. Um, and really the goal was to say, okay, how does this scale? Will it buckle at a certain point? What are some of the security challenges? And so out of the gate, uh, around that time, we decided to invest in Ethereum as, as our proof of concept environment, uh, only because, you know, there was, uh, specifically was the ability to create uh, Turing complete smart contracts, which at the time was a big deal. So we could actually write code that would facilitate the movement of money in our proof of concept. Mm -hmm. So we, we built a rudimentary Ethereum-based um, uh, proof of concept of this general ledger system. And we had some good learnings that came out of it. You know, we struggled a little bit with solidity. We, we struggled with um, uh, our own security control. So, so the Fed's um, uh, frameworks, security framework is very restrictive. So we needed to make sure that we could run this within our, our framework. Um, but along the journey, um, I had the opportunity uh, late 2016 to travel to Europe for a meeting of other central bank leaders focused on um, DLT. And we had members of uh, the Bank of England there, Deutsche Bundesbank, the, the European Central Bank. And we had an opportunity to kind of share our journey. And one of the things that was interesting was um, some of the banks were starting to evaluate Hyperledger Fabric as, as maybe a, a technology of interest. And so that, that piked our interest. And so as we start to evaluate um, Hyperledger, we recognize that um, the, the legacy or the, the native um, membership services, the native PKI capabilities and the permissioned uh, architecture really was much closer to our, our vision than the permissionless environment of, of Ethereum. So when we came back to the US, we said, okay, let's, let's pause Ethereum. We're gonna switch over to Hyperledger. And so we ended up constructing um, initially a similar balance sheet um, uh, type of environment, as I mentioned with Ethereum. But in the course of our evaluation, this idea started growing within our discussions, uh, which is what is the unique role of the Fed in financial services and, and how can we come up with a use case that, that would best present that responsibility? As we talked about earlier, um, how important the bank examiner function is within the Fed. And we said, well, aha, again, what if in the future each depository institute is a node in some sort of blockchain environment? Where would the Fed sit within that, that ecostructure? And so we started... Um, sort of positing out this idea of what a, a audit node or supervisory node would look like. And so Hyperledger was really a good um, sandbox uh, to, to play with that. So we set, up, um, we set up channels. So as we moved from Hyperledger 0.06 to Hyperledger 1, we started leveraging this idea of channels so that we would have um, you know, restricted communications between these, these simulated banks. And then we'd say, okay, what sort of traffic would we be looking for? Would it be, you know, any money laundering? Would it be know your customer? Would it be some, some other uh, bank examiner responsibility? And so, you know, net-net, our white paper um, lays out our journey in, in those two use cases. What we learned from Ethereum, what we learned with Hyperledger, and how we really evolved our learning in the Fed 
from a technical point of view that we can bring back to the policymakers and the thought leaders. And, and there are other big market players exploring similar solutions, right? Uh, like Corda uh, and part of the R3 uh, consortium, which is consists of major banks and financial institutions, and and they've been exploring the idea of a supervisory node uh, allowing you know regulators or a supervisory body like it could be the OCC or the Fed to have some supervisory oversight of the transaction flow, yeah, like financial agreements, you know, something like an interest rate swap. Um, is that similar to what you're experimenting with? And, and But why, why not go uh, with the Corja solution? So ex- excellent question. I think a lot of our journey with, and decisions were, were timing based and what was going on within the blockchain industry at the time. Um, and I would also argue, you know, we were, we were a scrappy startup within the Boston Fed <laughs> where we didn't have the depth that we'd like. And um, I'm not sure, are you familiar with the Project Ubin activity that the Monetary Authority of Singapore had led? Can you please expand? Yeah, so, um, so the Monetary Authority of Singapore led a, a blockchain evaluation effort where they actually evaluated um, Corda, Hyperledger, and Quorum. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they built a, a liquidity management system simulation using all three platforms. And they issued a white paper that I recommend to your audience that is, is terrific, that really mm-hmm. lays out their learnings and, and how they constructed smart contracts. But the benefit they had is they, they had a large team uh, with a lot of depth and, um, you know, the capacity to build out a, a true bake-off between these technologies. We unfortunately didn't, didn't have that. And so we had to be very judicious in the way we chose our technologies. So the fact that we had a pivot from Ethereum to Hyperledger uh, meant we were only had enough bandwidth to look at, at one player at a time. Now, with that said, um, within the Federal Reserve, uh, we have uh, a, an organization we call the DLT Roundtable. And so it's made up of other practitioners at other banks who are interested in blockchain. And, and we get together once a month for hosted events. And what we try to do at those events is invite vendors to speak. So we, we have had people from uh, R3 speak to us. We've had people from other blockchain technologies. We've had people from the World Economic uh, uh, Group talk to us. And last week we had an interesting overview from a group that's building uh, an Ethereum name service, similar to DNS, but for um, you know, the, the, the lookup of the long alphanumeric crypto strings to a more user-friendly. So even though we haven't got our hands dirty in some of these other platforms, we, we've tried to continue our education. Yeah, so I'll certainly link in our show notes uh, for uh, listeners, uh, a link to the uh, Boston Fed white paper and the other to Project Ubin, which is uh, experimental uh, central bank project um, under auspices of uh, Central Bank of Singapore, um, MAS. Yes. Yeah, Monetary Authority of Singapore, yeah. Now, for many first-comers, they encounter this uh, market, this technology through cryptocurrencies, right? So uh, a lot of the uh, projects that that you deal with uh, clearly don't involve cryptocurrencies. But for the ecosystem around crypto, um, you know, whether it's a possibility, a, a viable option as, you know, alternative finance, that ecosystem has really expanded and, and grew uh, drastically in recent years. From the conferences that you've attended, I mean, have you seen any uh, interesting use cases uh, around uh, digital currencies um, 
this is more of taking a step back, looking at you know the broad range of uh, possibilities uh, with uh, with this technology. So, so absolutely, um, you know, I had the opportunity to go to Consensus last year in New York, and you know, made my ways around the uh, the vendor showcase. So, you know, was exposed to some of these these new ideas, and, and certainly, I try to keep an eye on what is now roughly twenty six hundred cryptocurrencies out there. Um, I'm also a consumer, so I'm proud to say I own 11 Ethereum coins uh, that I purchased. So I bought them in 2016, and the only reason I bought them was I wanted to understand how a digital wallet worked, how it would set one up. And so I bought them at $5 a coin, and, and since then, <laughs> I've gone up a little bit. Uh, but I don't, I don't have them as an investment. I have them as a, as a learning mechanism. Um, but um, in terms of uh, the, the overall crypto space, um, what I will comment on, I'm not going to comment on sort of my favorites mm-hmm. or not. Um, what I do want to comment on is um, an interesting study that um, President Bullard, who is the, the president of the San Francisco Fed, or rather the St. Louis Fed, put together. And it's this whole idea of, of um, currency competition. And I recommend that, that your audience read it, and I can send you the link afterwards. And, and what, he, what he, he lays out is that this whole idea of microcurrencies is, is nothing new, even though there's a lot of excitement around digitizing currencies. But what he talks about is, you know, you go back to World War II, and, you know, cigarettes were a form of currency. So if you look at the, the history of, of currencies and competition, basically says that the public yeah, generally dislikes long-term multiple currencies competing against each other. And so what's fascinating about that is that ultimately says, you know, he doesn't take a stand on whether cryptocurrencies and fiat currency um, are in any sort of competition. But what he does lay out is that multiple currencies within an economy tend to be problematic. Um, and so I think it's fascinating as we look at these 2,600 currencies and through that lens is a good learning experience. The only other thing I would say on this topic is, you know, I'm fascinated on, you know, these different types of currencies, whether it's a currency or a token uh, in a blockchain, like what JP Morgan's trying to do. Um, and especially I'm keeping an eye on, on Libra right now. Um, not so much from the currency point of view. I'm leaving that to my payments colleagues here at the bank. But we've started to kick the tires a little bit on, you know, their, their rust stack and, and their new move um, layer and how they're doing permissioned uh, networks. And I think indirectly our hopes are is that will help us better understand how Libra as a currency will operate and so we can better advise our leaders. It's interesting because the concept of uh, competing currencies, there's a lot of uh, historical parallels and uh, it's not a new phenomenon. In the past, uh, over the decades, in the form of private money, uh, mm. which is not uh, fiat uh, or you know, relate to a sovereign um, government money. And so uh, they certainly have existed in parallel and even for uh, fiat currencies that uh, there have been a lot um, that emerge over time. Uh, but the average lifespan of, of a currency uh, relatively is not that long in the grand scheme of, of history. And uh, I, that's, that's something that I took away from an interesting study. I think it was done by, by Princeton University, some of the academics there. Um, but yeah, I, I can certainly uh, see you being a, a tinkerer and you, know, you definitely have to get your hands dirty and you know, uh, open up your digital wallet and see how you transfer 
this um, from one wallet to another wallet and, and just really be able to have a, a closer feel of, you know, how, how this thing operates. Now, uh, one takeaway from the tech experiments you've done is that this technology is certainly not mature for large-scale adoption. That's why you were mentioning, you know, a recent development that has garnered a lot of attention is the Facebook's uh, Libra proposal. Uh, it was designed, at least the way they shape it, is to be a global protocol for, you know, low-cost transfer value for anyone using the Facebook ecosystem. What are your feelings are on how, what the public reaction has been to this proposal? I mean, has it been overall negative, you think? Or is it going to be, you know, like a positive uh, reaction, a boon for this technology, uh, possibly bringing it to the masses? So, um, so I think so. Um, you know, cautiously, I say, I think so. And, 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 and the reason for that, uh, and, and, somewhat back to President Bullard's comments, um, you, you know, again, you know, the, the foundational aspect of any currency is that it needs to be stable and it needs to hold value. And I think what we've seen with, you know, the, the current uh, families of cryptocurrencies, uh, excluding the stable coins, is that they fluctuate. And so it's very difficult to, to make them a standard form uh, to buy goods and services if the value is, is swinging wildly. And I think, you know, what the, the consortium uh, in Europe that they're setting up uh, will manage what I understand is a basket of, of low-risk um, securities and, and commodities that will essentially uh, ensure the stability of, of the Libra coin. And so that maybe is a slight, you know, wrinkle that hasn't existed before even with the stable coins. So, you know, having the, 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 the might of the names behind it and having this, this focus on trying to stabilize it, I think, might be of interest to the population. I think the biggest challenge still, and when I give presentations on blockchain, I call it, you know, my grandmother's challenge, which mm -hmm. is how do you create an environment that um, is, is um, user proof to consume uh, cryptocurrency activity. And um, in one of my slides, when I talk, I have a picture of a, you know, a Bitcoin ATM machine. And, and I walk through how challenging it would be for my, my grandmother to go up, create a digital wallet, you know, put money in it, it just, the whole process would fail. And so I think what Facebook needs to do is to create, you know, as they look at these, these mobile-based um, products um, that will allow the facil facilitation of Libra, has got to be something my, my grandmother could intuitively use. And I think that's an important part of it. So you've spoken a lot at conferences on cybersecurity, and you're very in tune with what the industry is doing. Do you have any major privacy concerns about this technology, you know, facing businesses and the financial system? Uh, absolutely. And, and I'll start with two words, which is Capital One <laughs> in terms of that. And, and I think, you know, what we've seen this week in terms of the hack that took place in Capital One is, is a cautionary tale. And what I've been a so one of my roles here at the Fed is I'm, I'm driving at a system level, um, our, our journey to the cloud strategy around how we're assessing the readiness of our apps and how we might move them to, you know, potentially an AWS or Azure or Google or someone else. And so as part of that is really getting a deep understanding of the configuring of, you know, virtual private cloud environments, routing tables, um, security policies. And what, we're, what, what we see in what happened with, with uh, Capital One was that there might have been a misconfigured WAF or 
some rule was not set up correctly that allowed this threat agent to come in and exfiltrate quite a bit of data. And so, you know, Monday morning quarterback, it's easy to look and said, well, they should have done X, Y, and Z. But to me, it's, it's, it's a cautionary tale about, um, you know, if I stand up a blockchain-based payments platform in the future, what are those security risks? What are those vulnerabilities that an individual hacker will try to compromise? Um, and, and really, you know, part of it is the smart contracts. Uh, when I talk about my, when I give presentations, you know, people will ask me questions about like Mt. Gox or the, you know, the Ethereum DAO. And again and again, the good story is that the underlying blockchain environment really was never compromised. It was mm-hmm. solid. It was the fact that either keys were lost or that, you know, some piece of code in the smart contract was improperly configured. So that's going to be the story going forward. You know, buggy code is buggy code. And so as a developer and as a person who runs IT operations, my thinking as we construct blockchain environments of the future is what are these frameworks we're going to put in place from a a testing and QA and, you know, user acceptance to ensure that we have uh, as bulletproof an environment as we can. And so again and again, we have to learn from these Capital One stories that this has to be, you know, uh, A1 through A10 priority for any platform we stand up. When you're engaging with uh, the private sector and market participants at conferences, what are you hearing on where this market is going? Because more broadly, I mean, what are you hearing about how does blockchain fit into this, you know, the spectrum of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, you know, robotics, uh, what have you, because you are involved in, you know, in, in a broader market and in a broader space. It's not just blockchain technology. Yeah. So, so what's interesting is um, Jim Cunha, who you had spoken to a couple months ago, his audience arguably would be um, the, the policy experts and the business experts on crypto and blockchain and other topics. My audience more and more is the CIOs of companies. So, you know, none of them claim to be bankers, none of them claim to be payments experts. So what they're wrestling with is, is what is blockchain as a tool in their toolbox for their operations, whether it's in healthcare or education. And, and what I find is that um, there's still a lack of understanding in many cases of what blockchain is. Um, you know, and that's often the question will come up is, is why are you even thinking about blockchain? for some solution, and, and it's the hype. You know, people hear about it and say, hey, I was gonna build a website on a, on a traditional LAMP stack, but I'm gonna build on blockchain because it's the thing du jour. And so in the, the sessions uh, I do with CIOs, I talk more about evaluating the idea of blockchain. And, and what I'll say to them is, fundamentally, you need to understand what the value of, of a blockchain is. And, and what I say it is, is providing trust within a trustless environment. It, it is that disintermediation. So if you have some process or organization or operations that can benefit from that disintermediation and that trust, absolutely embrace blockchain, but don't try to use it as the tool of choice for things that, that don't make sense. So, so often that comes up in our, our discussions within these, these CIO areas. Um, I'm seeing a little bit, uh, when you think about Gartner's uh, maturity curve, mm-hmm. you know, that trough of disillusionment. So there was a lot of buzz. And, you know, last year I'd go to every CIO conference had blockchain as like the top topic. And it's fallen a little bit, but I think what we're going to start seeing is, is more mature discussions around it. 
Um, with that said, I've, I've been privy to what I think is some real interesting discussions. And, and one of my favorite discussions was a, a CIO conference I went to last year where the CIO of the University of Michigan was on stage. And she was talking about blockchain as, as a facilitator of, of education. And she kind of laid out this great story about in the future, you know, your educational history is portable on the blockchain. And your resume becomes, you know, an immutable reflection of who you are. But she said, more importantly, we're all sitting in this conference. It could be worth educational tokens. And if we had a blockchain, we'd be, you know, um, recording those educational tokens on the blockchain that can better show your, your skill set. And to me, that was an eye opener, you know, as I because I've been mostly focused on finance. But wow, you know, how can blockchain completely disrupt the way education works? And then, of course, we hear the stories about e-health. We hear things like, you know, um, the music industry and MP3 um, uh, distribution could be facilitated. Um, so a lot of that comes up uh, in the sessions. In terms of your question on, on the emerging technologies, um, I think one of the hottest topics that, that I'm involved with is automation. Mm. You know, how can things like robotic process automation start um, automating very rote chores in, in business? And IoT is big, big right now, um, cloud and, and, uh, and data. But ultimately, all of those can um, orbit around blockchain technology. You know, there's a lot of discussions about how IoT devices could interact with the blockchain environment to record activity, how blockchain could generate a lot of data that would be interested in predictive analytics and, and business um, strategy. Um, and automation could interact with the blockchain depending on what a use case is. So I think ultimately, I try not to look at these as silo techs, but, but part of a digital transformation um, ecostructure. And so we've been speaking with our guest, Paul Brasso, the VP of Technology Solutions at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. As we shared earlier, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is one of the, of the 12 uh, regional banks of the Federal Reserve System. And Paul's been sharing with us uh, his learnings, uh, his insights. As he interacts with uh, private uh, industry participants, um, market actors about emerging technologies, um, what kind of value they can, they can provide um, to uh, businesses and the economy overall, um, and also to provide uh, some highlights from uh, the Boston Fed's own effort experimenting uh, with this technology. Paul, uh, thank you uh, for providing uh, your perspective, and we, we hope to have you back soon to provide an, an update and, and more takeaways. Thank you, Dong. I look forward to our next discussion. <laughs>